Are you serious though? Like 78%? That's so many. It's an astounding number. I'm starting to question who are all these people? Yeah, I had faith in our listeners. Well, when they were saying that I won the debates, but if 78% of our listeners think that Batman would beat up Superman, I'm losing faith rapidly. I really want to hear their justifications for making that assessment. (laughs) I suppose there's still a few days left. They can go back or we're recording. So you all, welcome to Indubitably, our listeners, can go back to the polls and explain how on earth you think that Batman and his toys would defeat Superman and his literal laser eyes. Yeah. Are are you just unfamiliar with the premise of both of these characters? Um, Anyway, so 78% of you think that Batman would defeat Superman. We'd like to hear why (laughs) in the Q&A section on Spotify, or we're really mad about this, so email us, indubitablypodcast at gmail.com. Let us know, like, why? That's all I have to say about it. Man, someone's going to submit like a really genuinely compelling argument, and then we're going to have to get back on here and apologize. If somebody can put up a realistic argument that's not just, well, he'll use kryptonite, <laughs> uh, we will we will tell the rest of the listeners what it was on next week's show. Deal. Besides that, though, on a, on a more serious note, we've been getting really good response on the polls on Spotify, which we're happy about. It's been kind of fun for Kelly and I to look over. Uh, We also would like to start taking a bit more advantage of the Q&A button. And so we are going to ask all of you to help us out for a new episode format that we're going to be trying in a couple of weeks. What we'd like to play with are questions that deviate from our standard engaging in these pretty binary debates that we have. We usually have a pretty closed question of this or that or yes or no or things along those lines. But that's not the only type of discussion that um, warrants some examination. Mm -hmm. And we want to start running episodes, see how it goes, that are a bit more open-ended. And we figured we might as well start with a big one. And so we want to be asking the question, what is the meaning of life? Chocolate. (laughs) <laughs> or 42. Yeah, nerd. But the uh, the point is, what we'd like to do is we'd like to spend the episode looking at a variety of different answers and examining the strengths and weaknesses of each of those answers. And so, for the Spotify listeners, our Q&A for the next couple of episodes will be, literally, what is the meaning of life? Heavy stuff, man. <laughs> and we'll be taking some of our listeners' answers and using them to help us fill out that episode. And as usual, for the listeners that don't have Spotify, you can email us, you can Facebook us, you can Twitter us. Is that what it's called? You're really bad at social media, but I think they get the gist. (laughs) You can can bird at us at IndubitablyPod and also provide us your answer to what is the meaning of life. And I think it'd be an interesting conversation that, like you were saying, Kelly, deviates from our typical are beauty pageants good? Is vigilantism a positive thing? Very yes or no, black or white, and gives us an opportunity to sort of compare and contrast different value judgments against one another. I'm very excited to see where this discussion takes us. And I'm very excited to see which of our listeners decide to participate by giving us their responses. We promise we will be nicer to y'all's opinions than we are to each other's. You're promising that. Unless your opinion is that Batman would defeat Superman. Yeah, invalid. (laughs) Indubitably. Extra, extra, read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to Indubitably now. Extra, extra, read all about it. While we'd like to know what you think the meaning of life is... Today, we're going to be tackling a slightly more tangible question. Boring. (laughs) Okay. Where should we be getting all of our energy from? All right. That's not too boring. It's important, at least. We're planning to look at a variety of energy sources from fossil fuels to nuclear power, solar, wind, geothermal, hydro, and biomass. 
What about laser eyes? I wonder what fuels the laser eyes, though. The sun. Actually, that's solar power, isn't it? (laughs) So you can see we have a lot of different options to choose from when it comes to power, but which one is the best? And how do we even determine that? That's actually an incredibly complicated question because there isn't one type of energy that is objectively best. It depends on what you prioritize. And of course, since different groups of people have different priorities, in a way, when you rank the factors that we can use to measure these various energy sources, we're also passing judgment on who matters the most. And with that, we'll be rating our various options with a few different criteria. How much energy each source can provide, the availability, renewability, safety, environmental impact, and economic considerations such as cost and the jobs provided by each form of energy. And I think what we'll do here, which is a little bit different than our normal episode, is create a tier list. We've got these categories that we're going to rate each of our options on. We'll rank each one and we'll score it at the end to determine what is the superior energy source. All right. So to recap, we've got fossil fuels, nuclear power, the renewables, we'll call them. It sounds like an Avenger movie. Solar, wind, geothermal, hydro, and biomass, which is kind of on its own. Why don't we start the discussion by rating them on availability? How much energy do they provide? Availability might be one of the most important, if not the most important considerations, because like it or not, we need power. The world runs on electricity of some form or the other. Yeah, we're definitely not going to give that up. Even if we decided that fossil fuels are the worst of all of our options for energy production, uh, sneak preview, they probably are. (laughs) But if we haven't developed the technology or infrastructure to replace them with alternatives, we are going to stick with them, whatever the ramifications of that decision would be. The way that we've structured our world means that bad energy is better than no energy, even if it means we're causing irreparable damage to our planet at a scale that could pose an existential threat. We've talked about this on previous episodes, but we care more about our immediate needs being met than we care about future planning in a lot of cases. And we need power and we need it now. We've made it pretty obvious as a species that we will not stop utilizing dangerous energy sources until we can meet our demands with alternatives. So in a way, this question of how do these energy sources rank in terms of their ability to provide energy, that one category might trump all the others, at least in terms of determining our current policy. One of the biggest decisions a country needs to make is how to prioritize short-term sacrifices against long-term benefits. And this is kind of the point when we're saying it's a complicated decision. There is no real right answer to this question. And we can definitely see different countries, different regions of the world deciding differently. Uh, Shifting our entire energy infrastructure costs money, it costs jobs, it costs efficiency, and there are implications for a country's ability to compete on an international playing field depending on what decision that it makes. In some of these cases, we would be asking people to sacrifice their own well-being for others coming in the future, people who aren't even born yet. And that is a hard calculus to math out when you have to consider and value yourself in the present term. (laughs) We can see the response that some uh, boomers have to somebody like Greta Thunberg, for example, of she doesn't know what she's talking about. She's a kid. I've got a family to feed. This is my job. This is my livelihood. Certainly that sentiment is reflected there. But there are also other people who consider that, oh, these children that I've had probably want to survive into adulthood. So maybe we should make sure the world is habitable for them. Right. That's the flip side of this is while some people don't want to sacrifice for a potential future, other people believe that they shouldn't have to suffer for the choices of their predecessors. And any millennial, even elder millennials like you or I, Kelly, hey, watch it, uh, are probably sympathetic to that. You know, we weren't going to get into this conversation without having some math involved. 
sorry in advance, but we'll try to make it fun for you. So begin this conversation about the availability of the electric output of all these different energy sources. We need to look at both the current amount of production and the potential availability for these resources. Mm -hmm. Which is all, I think, tied also to the concept of renewability, one of the biggest knocks against fossil fuels. They're going to run out. For some context here, the current world consumption of energy is at 15 terawatts. I have no idea what that means, but that's the number. And we'll be using terawatts as our unit of measurement. So whatever it is, there's 15 of them. That sounds real small. Yeah, only 15. I always thought we would use more. Hmm. <laughs> so in the United States, keeping 15 terawatts in mind, we currently get 60% of our power from fossil fuels. So well over half. 18% from nuclear power, 10% from wind, 6% from hydroelectric, 3.4% from solar, and 1.3% from biomass. And we only get 0.4% from geothermal, but I think it's a cool one, so we're going to talk about it. I didn't even know the U.S. had any geothermal energy. We do. We have 0.4% of it. The interesting number here in my mind, I didn't realize that we got a full 10% from wind and only 3.4% for solar. I would have guessed that solar would have been more substantial than wind. Let's back up for a second and talk about one of these power sources that perhaps people are a little less familiar with. Josh, what even is biomass though? <laughs> it's wood. <laughs> That's what it means. It's plants. Hey, I run on plants too. <laughs> They're basically replacing coal with plants uh, or biological material, a mass of biological material, if you will. Delicious. And the actual process through which we get energy is very similar to coal, but unlike uh, coal's lack of renewability, we can keep growing stuff. So 1.3% of the United States is energy now, but... One of the energy sources that we are looking to as having the highest potential moving forward into the future. So those are the numbers in the United States. The world numbers are a little bit different. This is according to the Brookings Institute. Fossil fuels across the globe are at 64%, so very similar. Nuclear power is at 10%, and hydroelectric power is at 15%. Biofuels and other renewables are combined to make up that last 11%. So here, I think what's interesting is there's almost half of nuclear production compared to the United States, but almost triple coming from hydroelectric. Public opinion about many of these energy sources does differ globally. In particular, nuclear power has a lot of antipathy for it around the world, especially in countries that have fear of some of the risks of nuclear power, which I think we'll get into a little bit later. Mm -hmm. And again, it goes back to there's a variety of different strengths and weaknesses for each of these energy sources and different populations of people are going to prioritize those differently than others. And we can see that playing out both in the current strategies for energy production, as well as the plans for the future. Now. That's what we're doing now. But when we look to potential availability, it's going to, by necessity, change these percentages pretty extremely. And the obvious one is both the United States and the world having 60 to 64% of their energy produced by fossil fuels. That is going to change whether we like it or not, because it's estimated that the fossil fuels on the planet are going to run out by... Do you know what year, Kelly? I legitimately don't know. I can give a guess. Let's hear it. By the year 2090. So you think we've got about 70 years left of coal, oil, and natural gas? I guess. I don't know. This is something I have never even considered. I actually had no idea either until I read the number and the number... I think you'll be as surprised as I was. Most estimates say that we will run out of fossil fuels by somewhere between 2050 and 2060. So we could have less than 30 years of fossil fuels. Wow, we might live to see that. Yeah, but that's actually kind of wild. Like the idea that 
you or I and the age that we're at, which isn't the highest age, <laughs> could literally live to see a world where oil, coal just do not exist. That's blowing my mind because considering when we were born, fossil fuels were king and a major international power locus was centered around fossil fuels. They've slowly started to fall out of favor as we've become adults, and then we might outlive them. <laughs> That's just wild. Yeah, well, and, and still, geopolitics are dominated by fossil fuels. Uh, a lot of what's going on with Russia and Ukraine, obviously the United States with the Middle East, uh, there's still a huge portion of our world's politics are defined by fossil fuels. So if fossil fuels that are currently over half of our the world's energy source are going to disappear that forces us to ask the question what is the potential availability of these other sources as they are going to need to step up and fill that gap first of all nuclear power and obviously estimates here are going to change depending on who you ask but i think some fairly well backed up science says that nuclear power could potentially provide one terawatt across the globe. And here's where it's important to keep in mind that number that we cited earlier, which is currently we use 15 terawatts. So nuclear power could potentially provide one fifteenth of the power that we need across the globe. I didn't really think that there would be limits on something like nuclear power. It seems like something that can just be like infinitely expanded upon. So why couldn't all of our power be fueled by nuclear resources? Well, there are still, it's a very efficient energy source, but it is not renewable in the same way that wind, solar, et cetera, that we're going to talk about later are. There's limitations, for example, on the exotic metals that are required for containment of the radioactive material. The uranium itself that's used for consumption is also a limited resource. And also just functionally, if we were to try to provide 15 terawatts of power, the life cycle of a nuclear power plant causes some problems. So every nuclear power station needs to be decommissioned after about 40 to 60 years of operation due to neutron embrittlement. It sounds like brownie brittle from Costco. But unlike brownie brittle, which is delicious, neutron embrittlement is cracks that develop on the metal surfaces of the power plant due to radiation. And so if a nuclear station needs to be replaced every 50 years on average, then with the 15,000 nuclear power stations that would be required to produce 15 terawatts of energy, one station would need to be built and another decommissioned somewhere in the world every single day. So decommissioning a nuclear power plant is not as simple as just turning it off and like walking away from it. No, not unless you want another Chernobyl. I don't want another Chernobyl, but that miniseries was pretty good. <laughs> okay, so we've got nuclear power could potentially give us 115th. That's a substantial amount, but doesn't get us where we need to get to. So moving on, what about solar power? Well, the sun isn't going anywhere for at least a couple billion years, probably. So that seems like a pretty long lasting source of potential energy. Mm -hmm. I did a little bit of research and this episode is going to have a lot of numbers. So we're just apologizing up front about that. But in 90 minutes, that's an hour and a half to do the math for our listeners. See how quick I did that? You know, you constantly astound me with your mathematical abilities. <laughs> in 90 minutes, enough sunlight strikes the earth to provide the entire planet's energy needs for one year. Theoretically, the sun, solar energy by itself, could take care of us. And one study in the United States found that by 2035, solar energy had the potential to power 40% of the nation's electricity and employ 1.5 million people, another important consideration we'll talk about later, without raising the prices of power. Right. But that would also mean paving more of the planet with solar panels. And at some point, you're going to have a conflict between who's going to want to use that vacant land, people for whatever need they have, like housing or whatnot, versus solar panels. 
Right. We're definitely going to talk about land usage later, but at least theoretically, you've seen what we're willing to sacrifice in order to obtain oil. If uh, solar power was the way that we got energy, I'm sure we'd be willing to make sacrifices there too. If it's the only way I can watch TikTok, I'll give up some land for some solar panels. (laughs) Solar definitely has the potential. That being said, reliability can be an issue depending on where you live. Obviously, there's more or less sun. No matter where you live, there's never all the sun all the time. Potentially, technological improvements in batteries could help alleviate some of these concerns. But as things are right now, solar, definitely a ton of potential, but not without issues. Theoretically, you could build a nuclear plant pretty much anywhere, zoning, not permitting, uh, pun intended. And the sun goes everywhere, more or less on the planet. But are there other types of energy that are not necessarily as available in certain places as these two resources are? Right. I guess the trifecta of renewable energy would be solar and then wind and hydroelectric power. And wind and hydroelectric are a bit more location locked than solar is. So in some places, Denmark, for example, produces 40% of power currently from wind and has actually hit for a 24-hour period 100% of the country's power produced by wind before. Those fjords, they probably channel a lot of windy conditions. Mm -hmm. So the potential is there, but it is very landlocked, as you said. More places get the sun than get the wind. And similarly with hydroelectric power and geothermal power, they both have huge potential but need to be built where accessible. Geothermal, for example, out of our 15 terawatts, estimates say that it could provide potentially two terawatts of power, so double what we could get out of nuclear power plants, but it is very location locked. So certain parts of the world could really benefit from geothermal, uh, but despite that, other parts of the world, it's basically useless for them. It's their fault for not establishing a country on top of a bunch of places tectonic plates meet up. Right. Why did they not build civilization on top of a volcano? Weird. You would think that they would have built all of the civilizations on top of volcanoes. (laughs) I do think they tried a couple times. (laughs) We do have some examples of countries that have maximized their use of these types of power sources. And in particular, Iceland is running 100% on renewable energy. It gets 75% of its electricity from hydropower and 25% of it from the geothermal resources it has. The country then takes advantage of its volcanic activity to access geothermal energy, with 87% of its hot water and heating coming from this source. But conveniently enough for Iceland, it is literally referred to sometimes as A, the land of fire and ice, relatively conducive to geothermal energy, or I've heard also Iceland, the land of waterfalls relatively conducive to hydroelectric power. So great for Iceland, not necessarily applicable to the rest of the world. They are also rich in elves, which I think we should talk more about. (laughs) That's a future episode. (laughs) Additionally, Costa Rica is one of the most impressive countries to look at in terms of renewable energy. It runs 100% on renewable energy for 300 days each year. Yeah. Again, really impressive, especially considering the size of the economy of the country. But once more, Costa Rica is blessed geographically. It gets consistent rainfall for hydroelectric plants and has a dozen volcanoes, five of which are active for geothermal power, (laughs) which sounds great for producing energy in a renewable fashion, but doesn't sound great for the fact that they're building a country on five active volcanoes. I mean, the volcanoes are probably only like a very small portion of its surface area. Hopefully. (laughs) Because of those volcanoes, Costa Rica just approved three geothermal plants at a cost of 954 million US dollars. Check out my math again to make it easier to understand. That's almost a billion. Gosh, where where do you get this talent from? Uh, I don't like to brag. (laughs) But The important thing here is for a country that has an economy, once again, the size of Costa Rica's, they have made their priorities very clear. They are willing to spend a huge percentage of that economy 
ensuring that their country is at the forefront of implementing these renewable energy sources. Especially considering Costa Rica's role in being a very big tourist destination. If their country was devastated by pollution, there would probably be a pretty big fallout with their economy, considering the loss of tourist revenue that would very much outweigh the costs that they are investing in building more of these plants that are using renewables. And we're going to look at specific economic implications later. But when we do examine the decisions that these countries are making, perhaps a country like Costa Rica that does get so much of its money from tourism, it's an easier decision on whether or not it should be renewable, try to reduce pollution, try to reduce emissions into their air or water, potentially easier to make that decision for them than a country that is built off of manufacturing or a country like the United States that does have such a large coal or oil industry. And the last energy source that theoretically is renewable, but is not necessarily eco-friendly is our weird friend, again, biomass. Mm -hmm. According to the International Renewable Energy Agency, IREA, IREA, is that how you would pronounce it? I, I think I would say IREA. According to IRIA, in 2030, biomass could account for 60% of total final global renewable energy use. So that's a huge chunk. Biomass does have, again, a lot of potential, but like everything else, it does come with issues, which we will be talking about as we move through the other aspects of energy production throughout the rest of this episode. One of those aspects I think we should talk about now, though, while we're on the subject of potentiality, would be land usage. How much space does each of these energy sources take up? In terms of the economy of space usage, nuclear power is the clear winner here. 18% of the power in the United States comes from nuclear sources, and that's coming from only 54 power plants. A uh, 1,000 megawatt, again, these numbers mean nothing to me, and a 1,000 megawatt facility would take around one square mile. I think a megawatt is smaller than a terawatt. Oh, you might be onto something. <laughs> anyway, about 54,000 megawatts, that's 54 power plants times 1,000 megawatts each, is equivalent of 18% of the U.S. consumption. Again, the math. Wow. So for contrast, here's what should mean something to our listeners. There's imaginary numbers and there's meaningful numbers. The meaningful numbers here is that in order to produce that same amount of power, we would need 3 million solar panels, and that would take up 75 times more space than these nuclear power plants. For wind farms, it would be even worse. It would require 360 times more land than these 54 power plants. That sounds like a pretty startling amount of land that it would take to support wind cultivation, but wind turbines have to be pretty far apart from each other in order to work effectively. So there are definitely ways to utilize the land in between each of these turbines for uses such as agriculture. Mm -hmm. You can have a whole bunch of wind turbines with a whole bunch of cows grazing on the grass underneath them. That's actually uh, pretty common. The big windmills. The cow is oblivious on the ground, just eating their grass, waiting to be turned into hamburgers. <laughs> For me to eat. <laughs> so the wind is saving us from CO2 emissions. And meanwhile, the cows are releasing methane into the air. wonder if the wind turbines help disperse it and thus <laughs> <Maybe>. quicken the <laughs> global warming effect from cow farts. Um, in contrast to that, we have our biofuels, which, again, Remember, we have this prediction that energy from biofuels by 2030 could account for 60% of total global renewable energy. But here's one of the downsides. Biofuels currently take up 4% of agricultural land and take up 4% of our fresh water supply to be used in its conversion to energy. And remember, that's for 6% of the global energy supply. So if we were to try to increase the percentage that we use biofuels, let's say 24% of the global energy supply, that's going to be 
16% of our agricultural land, 16% of our fresh water being rerouted to producing electricity. And that has a real human cost in terms of food production and our efforts to reduce famine, for example. There is also a consideration for the types of energy it takes to run other parts of our world, including specifically cars. We currently use a lot of fossil fuels to power vehicles. That is overwhelmingly the majority of the types of energy utilized for cars. Or ethanol, which is actually, uh, like we we're talking about biofuels, a big controversy as well. Uh, again, going back to shifting agricultural crops that people need to eat to fuel my big-ass SUV. Not mine. I drive a mini SUV. Okay. You could be lying to us right now. We'd have no idea. I drive a Subaru Outback. I'll post it on our Facebook and Twitter at IndubitablyPod, etc., etc. Anyway, the point is fossil fuels are still necessary, necessary-ish, for the efficiency of cars. Obviously, there is a shift towards electric, but we don't have the infrastructure to sustain that, at least at the moment. And part of the reason is energy density. Uh, when we're talking about the potential that each of these energy sources has, this is an important factor as well. So a car, unlike a house, has to carry around its fuel when it travels. And pound for pound, gasoline contains 40 times the energy of a battery. A gas-powered car with a 12.4-gallon tank carries 77.5 pounds of gas. A 77.5-pound battery would allow an electric car to travel, guess how far? To the moon. Uh, to the moon or 21 miles. I got the math backwards. <laughs> I don't understand what's happening right now. So if an electric car had a battery that was the same weight as a typical gasoline-powered car, the electric car would only be able to travel 21 miles before it would run out of power. Okay, I've been envisioning electric vehicles to have a car battery the same size as like my car battery in my Ford Focus. <laughs> Are you telling me I've got that entirely wrong? <laughs> so to give you uh, the real situation here, a Tesla Model Y, for example, has a 1700 pound battery. That's to allow it to hit that like 300 plus mile range. Can you imagine how awful I feel right now? There is a convergence of two topics I know so little about, math and cars, happening right here, and I look like the most <laughs> ignorant person. <laughs> here you go, Kelly. Tesla, battery, real heavy. Car, gasoline, not so heavy. I am stunned. I'm just absolutely stunned by this. Yeah, I, I wasn't aware of exactly how big of a difference there was either. To be fair here, though, there are some mitigating factors. Uh, one a gasoline-powered car and the type of engine, et cetera, that it needs is going to be much heavier. So that offsets the weight a bit. And also, I think it's important to note that battery tech is advancing pretty rapidly while gas tech has stagnated. And so, again, if we're looking at potential, I don't know if 1,700 pounds of battery will ever fit into 77 pounds of battery, but potentially... I mean, they got computers smaller at some point, so there's always hope for the battery, I suppose. I know nothing about technology. <laughs> no, there is hope for it to shrink, but there is a certain size under which energy cannot be compressed, so we'll see exactly how far that goes. But what's also important here, when we're talking about priorities, there is a profit incentive directly tied to this battery tech, right? Like the farther... Teslas can go without you needing to find a charging station, the more comfortable people are going to be with them, the more likely they are to buy them. So similar to Costa Rica and its tourism industry, um, I think that our best bet to becoming renewable and environmentally friendly when it comes to power is to find ways for our environmentalism to come in sync with our capitalism. It doesn't happen often, but when it does, we actually see progress. Talking about potential availability has a lot to do with whether or not it is renewable, but that level of renewability can also directly impact how safe an energy source is, both in terms of environmental impact and potential for accidents. Right. I think that we are coming very quickly to the realization that when we harm the environment, we also do 
direct or indirect harm to ourselves too as a species. <laughs> All right, so guess which energy source is the least environmentally friendly? I feel like this one I, I got a lock on. I don't know anything about cars or math, but I'm pretty sure fossil fuels are horrible for everybody. <laughs> yeah, fossil fuels suck. Uh, they're the root of climate change, air and water pollution, and that leads to health impacts that we can discuss in a bit. Oil spills can be catastrophic. Just in general, fossil fuels are the worst when it comes to the environment. And that is at the root of all of this, the reason that we are trying to find ways to shift away from them. All right. Fossil fuels obviously suck. So next, um, how does nuclear power look? Nuclear power is great for the environment until it isn't. The operating of a nuclear facility is basically zero emission uh, until there's a meltdown or an accident and we have a uncontainable disaster here, not just for the people around the plant, but the environment as well. Chernobyl or Fukushima definitely had their environmental impacts. So rare, in general, nuclear power, good for the environment. But when it's not, it's real not. It's good till it's bad. <laughs> Basically. And I think, too, ironically, we should point out nuclear power reactors rely on fossil fuels to mine and refine the uranium to be used, as well as in the plant's construction. That does have to be counted against it. Right now, we can't have nuclear without fossil fuels. I'm sure that's not just unique to nuclear, though. A lot of the other types of energy we're looking at require a lot of manufacturing going into their production as well. So is that really a strike against nuclear so much? That's fair. And the more that we shift to these other energy supplies, the more we would be able to use their own energy to produce themselves. But as of right now, fossil fuels sort of infiltrate every other one of these options. So that's the case with solar, hydroelectric, wind power, geothermal, and biomass, which has its unique harms, which we'll talk about in a second. But besides the manufacturing, though, for the most part, solar, hydroelectric, wind, geothermal, great for the environment. The one thing that we do have to point out is habitat disruption. We mentioned earlier how much space all of these things take, and uh, space that solar panels are taking up is not space that the environment and pandas and trees and what else exists in the environment? Lots of things. But it's not just solar. Hydroelectric power, especially in the Columbia River up here in the Pacific Northwest, has diverted a lot of salmon habitat. That's been a pretty big concern. And uh, yeah, damming up rivers to get electricity. It's understandable that could have an impact on wildlife. So good in terms of emission, bad for pandas and salmon. Yeah. Is that the summary? But salmon are not as cute as pandas, so... I mean, if we're going to prefer one over the other, I guess, point for hydropower. What about beavers? They do fine. <laughs> All right. So we've got those. And then the last of our energy sources that we talk about is biomass. And we have already talked about the land requirements, the agricultural land that's taken up. But what's interesting about biomass is that it can theoretically be carbon neutral. The most common biofuel that we are moving towards is literally just cutting down trees, using them to power the plants, turn the turbines, get the energy. If we were to replant the trees at the same rate that we were to harvest them, biofuel could be carbon neutral. Realistically, that's probably not going to be the case, though. They could plant more trees than they take down. And trees eventually die anyway and release their carbon so if they're going to release their carbon one way or the other, we might as well be able to charge our iPhones out of it. The next thing that I think we have to consider under this environmentally friendly or not tag would be the waste. Nuclear power, once again, in terms of the amount of space that it takes up, seems like it's winning here. One uranium pellet that is one inch tall is the equivalent of 17,000 cubic feet of natural gas or 120 gallons of oil, or one ton of coal. Teslas should really look into uranium. I wouldn't put that past Elon Musk. He said crazier things. Oh, for sure. <laughs> that being said, here's the problem with nuclear waste. 
it can remain dangerous for up to 1 million years. And even more realistically, the low end is in the thousands, like 10,000 years for some of the expired uranium to not be dangerous for humans anymore. And so you do have to find ways, even though it's not a lot, you do have to find ways and places to store the waste from nuclear power plants. And that's a big concern. We can't just fire it into the sun. That was actually a proposal, is to send it out into space. But I think that it would probably be a bad idea to send radioactive material up into the sky and have it potentially explode, speaking of Elon Musk. Well, sure. So don't send it up with SpaceX. But I mean, space is an option. But I'm imagining that's probably pretty costly. So they're looking at more terrestrial options. Yeah, currently, most of it is just held on site at locations of current or former nuclear plants. There was a big controversy. I'm not sure if you remember the Yucca Mountain proposition. Oh, yeah. This was the location in Nevada. Yeah, that was a big discussion when I was in, I think, high school debate. I think it was a very big case study a lot of kids were talking about, which is how I learned about it. But everybody was concerned about not only that this was land that could become contaminated and near enough people and people of color that could be adversely affected by it, but it would have to get there somehow. You cannot teleport nuclear waste into this location. So what are the measures to to secure it when you're getting it across the country into this destination? That's a pretty big risk. Mm-hmm. Right. Plus earthquakes, potentially, if you're storing a whole bunch of that stuff underground. Um, it's one of the reasons they chose Yucca Mountain was there was a smaller risk for tectonic activity, but that risk is not zero. So we have environmental impacts. And then the question here that we referenced earlier, how do those environmental impacts translate into subsequent harms to humans, as well as what we haven't talked about yet, what are just any direct harms from the production of these various energy sources? A lot of the data about how dangerous different types of power or energy sources are talks about it in terms of the risk per the unit of energy produced. So it almost seems like a risk calculus of like, how many people are we willing to let die for the amount of energy we're going to get out of any given type of power? And that's a pretty cold and abstract way to look at it. But it is kind of helpful at understanding the scope of the electrical output and how much it hurts people. And again, I think the obvious one here is fossil fuels. Like we mentioned, it's not a secret that they are directly related to air pollution, water pollution, etc. In the United States alone, in 2018, 350,000 premature deaths were attributed to fossil fuel-related pollution. 350,000. Again, we talk about staggering numbers sometimes. This is certainly one of them. To get even more staggering, that same year, pollution related to fossil fuels accounted for 8.7 million deaths globally. These are all of the figures we can closely link to the air pollution caused by fossil fuels. But there's also the extreme risk and hard to quantify numbers that come from it when we're talking about global warming. I recently heard that the heat dome that hit the Pacific Northwest in 2021 resulted in like a couple thousand people dying. And it's very clear that that type of heat event wouldn't happen without the influence of global warming, which is fueled by fossil fuels. So all of these weird climate activities that are resulting in deaths all the time around the world with these weird weather fluctuations, it's obvious that fossil fuels are the cause. And it's really hard to say exactly how many people are dying as a result. Mm -hmm. Certainly some. And even if you don't like all of the link stories that connect fossil fuel energy production to those deaths, there are some that are very directly connected. And this would be the mining accidents that happen as we just try to harvest the coal and similar accidents happen on oil rigs, similar accidents happen around natural gas. Uh, in the past century in the United States, around 100 
thousand people have died in mining accidents. Although it is getting better. Right. The trend is moving downward considerably. In 2021, the U.S. only had about 10 deaths as a result of mining accidents. So there's a very good indication that the activity itself is becoming less dangerous overall, but it probably depends a lot on where the mining is actually occurring. In the U.S., there are pretty strong labor unions and there are government regulations that are probably improving the safety of mining. Other countries may not have as strict a regulatory approach to mining, so it really depends on who's doing the mining where. Um, But aside from mining accidents, there are other inherent risks to going underground and digging for coal. Yeah, black lung is still a thing, almost unavoidable in that line of work, and over time, almost necessarily a fatal condition. So fossil fuels, once again, suck when it comes to the environment, suck when it comes to health. I don't think that that's probably news to any of our listeners. Let's look at some of the other energy sources and see how they fare. How about solar energy? Are we getting black lung from solar? I've got a pretty bad sunburn. So it's interesting that you brought up the fact that nuclear energy is still somewhat dependent on fossil fuels for mining uranium and whatnot, because the risks of solar power are tied to the fact that manufacturing of solar panels still relies on things like carbon-based fuels as well. There are probably not people who are having solar panels fall on their heads or falling off of roofs when they install solar panels too often, but there are the risks of actually extracting the materials that are needed to build solar panels themselves. How about hydroelectric power? Yeah, hydro accidents, this is like a wild number to me. Between 1965 and 2021, roughly 176,000 people were killed in accidents related to hydroelectric power. I will say, though, that water is scary. It is powerful. I wouldn't have guessed the number would be so high, but I'm not surprised that hydroelectric power can be dangerous. Mm-hmm. Some of this stuff is unavoidable. It doesn't matter. You've, you've got to build a facility to harness whatever kind of power it is. So this is probably even across the board. Similar with biomass, I'm assuming similar with wind power. Does anybody get like hit by a turbine? So wind power is wild because there are deaths associated with it, but it's the weirdest stuff. It's things like a helicopter flying into a wind turbine or someone who's flying a small plane in fog and doesn't see a turbine and then runs into it. Oh, I was just kidding. But actually, the turbines are hitting people and killing them. No, they're hitting the turbines and getting killed as a result. So again, whose fault is it really? Okay, that's a fair distinction, I think. All right. So (laughs) as long as you don't run into a wind turbine, they are relatively safe. Seems to be the case. Yeah. All right. And that brings us back to uh, what has been a, a pretty good energy source for us so far, nuclear power. And when it comes to safety, Nuclear powers, I suppose similar to when it comes to the environmental impact, can either be great or real not great. But even when it's real not great, it's not as not great as you think it is. There are three major nuclear disasters that we can point to for why we are concerned about nuclear power. Chernobyl, being a very big nuclear fallout situation, only has 31 deaths that are directly associated with the actual meltdown that occurred within the first three months immediately following the accident. Then, when it came to Fukushima, which happened as a result of an earthquake in Japan, only one person was determined to have died due to radiation exposure, although there are 600 or so deaths that could be attributed to it indirectly due to evacuation stress. But compared to the actual death toll of the earthquake itself and the resulting flood, which was 20,000 people, it's still a really relatively minor number. And then Three Mile Island, which happened in the United States, nobody died. So in 70 years, with over 650 nuclear power plants in operation, there were only three major incidents and only 32 people whose deaths could be directly attributed to those disasters. 
Okay. I actually thought the number was much higher, especially for Chernobyl. Right. I thought so too. I watched the documentary. Remember? (laughs) (laughs) No, it was a mini series. It was fake. Yeah. I was going to say documentary might be um, a generous term. (laughs) Yeah. I think that the concern when it comes to nuclear power plants, though, obviously accidents and meltdowns is a big deal, but intentional attacks, a a nuclear power plant as the target of a terrorist attack could be a terrifying thing. And there's also risks of countries who claim to want nuclear power for peaceful means, potentially weaponizing that nuclear power for aggressive means. Iran's nuclear program is definitely 100% peaceful. Well, as few deaths as there might have been linked to nuclear power plants, this safety concern has been enough of a concern for Germany, for example, that they are actually phasing out nuclear power completely. Again, when we're having a conversation about priorities, Germany has recognized that they want to phase out fossil fuels. They're trying to move to renewable sources. Nuclear energy is a clean source of energy that can produce mass amounts of power. And yet, because of these risks that we're talking about, that has been enough for Germany to say that they are going to completely phase out their nuclear power program. And In the short term, at least, they are actually replacing it with fossil fuels. So despite their commitment to shift towards clean energy, they're preferencing oil and coal and natural gas over nuclear power. Yeah, this is a pretty bold move, considering what we've just discovered about how pretty small the risk of a nuclear disaster actually is. A lot of advocates for nuclear power say, look, if you're going to decommission it, You can afford to wait until you've got a viable alternative that is not fossil fuels. You have the time to set up your green energy sectors. You do not have to revert to coal. And so many of these decisions are so political. You have a population in Germany that saw the fallout from Chernobyl and decided rationally or irrationally that that was a bigger risk than the long-term risks that are posed by fossil fuels. Or maybe they just decided, hey, we're so far into fossil fuels now that what's another 10, 20 years going to matter? Regardless, Germany isn't the only country in Europe that's phasing out nuclear energy. Italy, Belgium, and Switzerland have also principally decided to be or become nuclear energy free. And other countries, we've mentioned Denmark is already pretty much 100% on renewable. Ireland, Portugal, and Austria will remain nuclear-free. There are other countries in Europe who still like to have their nuclear power plants and value them for the time being. Those would be Britain, France, Poland, Finland, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, and Hungary. They're planning to keep their nuclear power that they currently have and even build new reactors in the future. Mm -hmm. So within the same continent, some of these countries are neighbors looking at this decision of, okay, exactly what do we do? How do we fuel our economy? How do we power everything that we rely on? And these countries are making very different decisions, uh, being faced with the same realities of the strengths and weaknesses of these various energy sources. And one really interesting country, I think, to look at here is Japan. In the wake of Fukushima, Japan turned off all 50 of its nuclear power reactors. But in 2014, the government actually decided to start reoperating those reactors after a security check. So, a country that went through one of these disasters, one of these meltdowns, decided, okay, you know what? The risk is worth it. Japan also has space concerns. So the economy of having nuclear power use up such a small amount of their land probably is a pretty big motivating factor for continuing to utilize it. Hmm. Yeah, so a good example of how a priority that potentially the United States having tons of space doesn't worry us as much. Germany, reasonable amount of space doesn't worry them as much. But Japan says, hey, this is one of the things that's most important to us. All right, so we've got actual energy output. We've got potential energy output. We've got environmental concerns leading to safety. The last thing we're going to cover here is 
economic impact. And I think we're going to start with the cost to produce energy from each of these sources. That's where it hits our pocketbooks. How much do we have to pay for our electricity? Hearing everything that we have already, knowing that fossil fuels are so terrible, it would stand to reason that we must be using them because they are so inexpensive to produce electricity. Do we have that right? Is there a benefit in cost associated with fossil fuels that outweighs all of these other concerns? Well, natural gas is on the low end of the cost per megawatt hour. So the standard that we'll be using here, just to simplify things, because there's a lot of different ways you could measure this, is the levelized cost of energy. And it's basically, we're going to take in the upfront cost of building a facility, we'll take the operating costs, we'll take maintenance, transportation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It will add all that together and we will output the levelized cost of energy. How much does it cost per megawatt hour of energy? And once we've done that, fossil fuels, coal is kind of in the middle of the pack cost-wise. Natural gas is towards the bottom, but not the cheapest. That is bananas. Why are we using this type of energy if it's not even the cheapest? We already said politics, right? Yeah. (laughs) So uh, we'll get to that. But the cheapest types of energy are the renewables, wind and solar. Geothermal is slightly more expensive than natural gas, but in the bottom half. And the most expensive kind of energy here is actually nuclear. Yeah, it makes sense. You have to build giant facilities, and I'm sure those uranium pellets are not cheap. So nuclear at the top, and then coal, and then geothermal, natural gas, with wind and solar panels bringing up the bottom. This is reframing a lot of my thoughts about which form of energy might be preferable. That's just one aspect of the economic concerns, though. How much does it cost to us, the consumer? The other big thing that we have to consider here is the jobs that are either currently provided or potentially provided, and just the various industries, the coal oil industry versus the green tech industry, for example. And as to the question you just asked, If coal sucks for all these reasons, why do we still have it? The main answer, I think, in the United States has to be the political lobby of uh, the coal industry, the fossil fuel industry, the various miners, workers, the various owners of these plants. It's a very large and very powerful political voice in our country. You sound so cynical. I know. Usually I'm so optimistic. (laughs) There's two arguments here when it comes to jobs for the coal oil industry in the United States. One of them is that uh, similar to a lot of other jobs where we try to scare people with their labor and how it's going to be replaced by other people, migrants, other industries, etc. Coal mining is implementing automation at a mass scale. So coal miners, even if the coal mining industry doesn't go away, coal miners are not guaranteed that they're going to keep their jobs. One of the ways that the industry, I guess the industry that is energy altogether can adapt to the changing tides of popular opinion and recognizing the cheaper costs is that people who are currently mining coal do not have to necessarily mine coal forever. They can be trained on green tech, perhaps instead of mining for coal, they can start constructing solar panels or they don't even have to stay in the energy industry altogether. There are other jobs as well. I do want to be empathetic to people that are in an industry like this because it isn't easy to retrain, especially some of them might be, you know, in the 40s, in their 50s. They've done this their whole life and to just shift jobs is definitely difficult. But at the onset of this episode, we we looked to the question of short-term versus long-term. And at a certain point, holding on to the short-term benefit of providing jobs in a dwindling industry that has an end date. Again, we are literally running out of coal and we are running out of oil by 2050. So at that point, they need a new job, whether they like it or not. At a certain point, it makes sense to start pushing the shift and developing a green tech industry, because at least from the U.S.'s perspective, other parts of the world are doing that now. And if we wait too long, 
to try to reclaim a market share of an industry where everybody else has 20 or 30 years of a head start on us is almost impossible. So if jobs are the concern, then making sure that we have a thriving green tech industry in the United States seems like a really good idea if we want to be progressive and looking forward. We have learned so much today. I know my mind has been blown at least a few times here. So we have to take these criteria and actually apply them to determining which of these types of energy is the best after everything we've we've heard. And remember those criteria are availability, renewability, safety, environmental impact, and economic considerations. With all of those things taken into account, how do we actually rank these types of energy? All right, let's start with fossil fuels. Everything's got their high point, medium point, low point. What do they rank well at? What do they rank poorly at? Mm-hmm. I think the the benefit of fossil fuels is the current level of availability. Um, our infrastructure is built around it. There's jobs for it now. It is the easiest short-term solution. And any shift away from it is going to come with growing pains. That's the the argument for fossil fuels. Right. We don't have to worry about future generations because we're not going to be here to see them suffer. <laughs> Except for we will be because it's only 30 years away. No, but I'm talking about the impacts of the climate change as well. We're looking at that. Yes, things are getting somewhat worse in terms of really hot summers and what have you. But the actual, the planet cannot be lived on anymore eventuality is probably going to happen after we die. Yeah, they can deal with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so high, we have current availability. Um, medium ranking for fossil fuels. I would say economic considerations, the industry and jobs is sort of like a 50-50 for fossil fuels. It it, it definitely has some selling points currently. Um, where fossil fuels fall flat when is when it comes to safety, environmental impact, and the resulting human harm. And I don't know, at least in my mind, those are the things I would be prioritizing. So that puts fossil fuels relatively low on the list for me. Yeah, I don't want any more hot summers, even if we can technically still live on the planet the way that it is. (laughs) All right, let's move to the renewables next. So we've got solar, wind, hydro, geothermal, which have a lot of similarities, a, a couple of things that are unique to each one. So let's talk about those. All four of these are good for the environment. We've talked about availability. Uh, solar for sure. I think availability is a high point everywhere it gets the sun most of the time. The other one's a little bit less. They're all renewable. And the cost on at least solar, wind, and hydro is actually some of the best that we have. So those are the pluses for these renewables. Right. And there is some cost with implementing each of these types of technology, getting solar panels, setting up turbines, building hydroelectric dams. But should these be proliferated more, the costs are probably going to go down considerably too. And kind of in the middle, I would say consistency. How often is there sun? How often do we have enough water to generate this kind of power? How often do we have enough wind? And so that is a concern for all of these. But I think as battery tech, which is something else we discussed, improves, that will alleviate that concern a little bit because we'll be able to better store the energy to help us make it through those days where the consistency of the sun, the wind, the water isn't as great. A low point for hydroelectric power in particular might be the environmental impact for wildlife habitats. The scale at which you would need to build these dams to power enough of the country to replace fossil fuels I think would necessarily put some animals at a disadvantage, even if they are the less than attractive salmon. (laughs) So we have that issue. And then also hydro and geothermal, remember, are location locked. There are some places in the world where this is just not an option. So as opposed to solar and wind, um, solar especially, most places could implement this to at least some success. Our last sort of renewable was biomass and it shares some of the benefits with 
the unique downside of the impact on food supplies and the amount of land required. And I think that's a big one for me. Um, as, as our population around the world grows and food shortages are exacerbated, pitting the first world who needs electricity for their iPhones against uh, developing regions that need to eat just seems dystopian and a little bit problematic. There's also the possibility that the more biomass that is utilized for power production, the higher the cost that those countries exporting this to the U.S. can charge, and perhaps that will fuel their economies in some way. But in the short term, yes, it is a concern about their food supply. Mm, that's true. That's true. And last of all, we have what I think might be the most controversial fossil fuels in my mind, we should be moving away from renewables in my mind, we should be using when we can. What do you feel about nuclear power? I think that nuclear power should be a portion of the way that the world powers itself. For all the reasons we've discussed already, it does not make sense for it to become the exclusive power supply that we have. But it seems like a pretty stable and pretty clean way to power a lot of the world. And it would be a pretty substantial percentage if it was able to provide one terawatt. Was that the right unit? There you go. See, you're learning. But I don't know what that means yet still. We never really got into that. It means one fifteenth of everything. Of everything. Mm -hmm. It does. And yet there are, like we said, countries that have committed to getting rid of it completely. So that's why I think nuclear energy is the interesting one because it's that's where the least consensus internationally is. So the general consensus in the EU, at least, is to shift completely to renewable energy. Just to give our listeners to wrap this up, a, a state of affairs and where the world is at when it comes to this issue. In 2020, basically every country in the EU had met or overachieved their targets in their quest to shift to renewable energy, with the exception of one country, Kelly. What country in Europe is fucking up? Who seems really irresponsible in Europe? I'll give you a hint. They haven't had very many military victories. I was going to say France, and I was <laughs> like, I don't know if that's right. France is the one that has not met or overachieved their targets. So that's where things are now. Europe, at least, seems to be relatively in line with our thinking of let's shift to renewables. Whether or not they're going to use nuclear to fill the void in the meantime, definitely some dissent on, but pretty much everybody's off of the fossil fuel train, whether it's because it's good for them or out of necessity in 30 years. We'll see. God, I've learned a lot today. Regardless of what countries want, they're going to have to make some changes considering global supply. So it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. And what they prioritize and what they think the meaning of energy should be and what you think, our listeners, the meaning of life is, make sure remember to let us know in the Q&A on Spotify or do email us and let us know. And we will be using the best answers in the episode in two weeks. So you'll get to hear your own words talked back to you through me and Kelly. And you cannot answer 42 because Josh already did. <laughs> The meaning of life is 15 terawatts. God, I still don't know what that means. <laughs> I just told you it's the meaning of life and everything. And, and the universe. universe.